how really cool it is um, that I get to have the privilege every week of, uh, of standing up here and reminding you of the greatest news that the world has ever known. Um, you know, we call it the gospel, which means good news. Uh, it's a shame we can't change the name because that seems like an understatement. Uh, it is good news, but it's the, it's the greatest news. It's the greatest news that the world has ever heard. And it's my job, it's my privilege to stand up here every week and to remind you and to remind me of this gospel. You know, the main events of the gospel that happened about 2,000 years ago, there was a guy named Jesus, and uh, he was a carpenter, he was a preacher, he was a miracle worker, and uh, he also claimed to be God. Now, he did this for, for a while, and, and pretty soon the Roman authorities and uh, the Jewish leaders of the day, they got annoyed with him, they felt threatened by him, and so they had him killed. Uh, they crucified him. They hung him on a cross until he died. And he did die. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. And that's really interesting news. Um, but the thing that makes it the greatest news is that Jesus didn't just claim to be God. He really was God. And that death that happened on the cross, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't an accident. That was part of his plan uh, that, that God knew that we had a problem, that you and I had a problem, that because of our sin we'd been separated from him, and that because of our sin we deserve to die. And so God in his great love and infinite wisdom became a man and, and lived as a person of Jesus Christ and died in our place so that in his death our penalty is paid. The sacrifice is made. And, and the greatest news is this, that <clears throat> what he does for us now is he offers us as a free gift, as a completely free gift, <clears throat> excuse me, forgiveness from our sins. So that's the greatest news, folks, that, that it's grace, this amazing grace that we sang about, that there's nothing that we have to do to earn the salvation, that God has done it all, that Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived, that he died the death that we should have died, and that if we believe in that gospel, we have eternal life. That's what we call grace. It's what we call the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about today. Go and flip in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Uh, it's in the New Testament. It's a small letter. Hopefully you're figuring out where it is by now. Uh, because we've been doing a series in the book of Titus, and we've been looking at uh, what I call the nine keys for the church. It's this letter that Paul has written to Titus, and he says, here's the basic things that you've got to get down if you're going to be healthy as a Christian and as a church. And we've looked at four of those keys so far as we march through the book, and we've seen that, first of all, we've got to put God first, because it's his church, it's his plan of salvation. It's all about him, not about us. Then we found you've got to have elders who lead, godly elders who lead. Uh, the third key is that we need to teach the truth and not get off track in man-made myths or commandments. Uh, and then the fourth key we saw is that we have to make disciples, as God calls us to live out our calling in everyday life, uh, even as we're changing diapers, we're glorifying him, uh, and, as we, and we live out our lives making disciples, and then we also help other people to live that way. Well, today we're going to get to the fifth key, which is in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and it's all about grace. See, the fifth key for the church, and for you and for me, is that we need to live under grace. Which means we need to live, like that story I just told you, 
is actually true. Because it is. So let's read Titus chapter 2, starting verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We're going to talk about grace today, and, uh, and what I've been telling you so far, that greatest story that the world has ever known, and what verse 11 in our passage here tells us is that first of all, we're saved by grace. This is point number one on your outline, we're saved by grace. Verse 11 says this, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So when Paul, the author of this letter, says, uh, the grace of God has appeared, He's talking about those events that I just told you about, the events of the life of Jesus. So when Jesus came, when Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead, the grace of God appeared. And it's a saving grace. It's a grace that brings salvation to all people. So like I said, grace, the definition of grace is this unmerited favor. Like there's nothing that you can do to earn it or to deserve it. He just says it appears and now he's bringing salvation. It's available to all people. So you don't, have to be, you don't have to be a special class of people. You don't have to have done a certain thing in order to receive grace. You don't have to have performed well enough to merit the grace that God offers. It's freely available to everyone. It's foundational. The opposite of this would be to say that salvation is by works, okay? which we're much more comfortable with as humans. We think, okay, tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it, and then I will have earned salvation. That's how our jobs work. It's not how salvation works. See, it's a free gift. It's by absolutely free grace. And that's how the Christian life starts. And, and I, I hope that we're all on board with that because that's where we begin today as we get into the message. But I want us to understand that, that salvation is by free grace. We can't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's all a gift from God. It's how the Christian life starts. But it doesn't stop there. And Paul doesn't leave it there. Because he goes on to say that grace also, uh, so point number two, we're also trained to obey by grace. So we're saved by grace first, but we're also trained to obey by grace. Verse number 12 describes the life that someone lives once they've been saved. Uh, verse number 12 says it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So there's two main things that go on here when you get saved, right? Your life changes. The first of all, you deny ungodliness or you renounce or you say no to ungodliness. So when you become a Christian, one of the things that happens is your life changes. You're not the same person that you were before. Um, I asked my wife's permission to share the story uh, because uh, she's just got a great story from her life where something like this happened. Uh, she got saved in, in high school and uh, I don't think anyone told you to do this. No, no one told you to do this. Just the Holy Spirit working in you. you uh, she took all of her CDs and the music that was important to her before that she'd listened to, and she went out into her backyard, she made a big bonfire, and she burned all her CDs. 
and uh, she's got a rueful look on her face right now because uh, you know she she she, she, she I mean she'd tell you now she's really happy that she did that it was a good thing it was a good sign uh, she's probably a little uh, too uh, not discriminating and, and burned some CDs she'd like to have still uh, but the, the the symbol the the act it was great because she she saw you know there's these things in my life these things that were influential on me that were dragging me down and and no I'm not the same person I was before. So I'm going to take all this music that symbolized the person I was before, and I'm just going to burn it, literally burn it. I love my wife. It's great. Um, I'm not saying you have to do that. But what happens when you become a Christian is you do something like that. You renounce your former way of life. You're just not the same person that you were before. There's a change. So you say no to the things you were before, but you also say yes to godliness. See the second part of verse 12 there. We learn to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And these descriptors there, there's just three adverbs describing how we live. We live self-controlled, we live upright, godly lives. They don't tell a lot of detail, but the idea is that you're just you're living a recognizably good life. So what, what happens when you become a Christian? You you no longer do the things you did before, and now you do things that are good. I, I hope that this is not a novel concept. Um, I think that you hear this message a lot. I think you would hear this from the pulpit a lot, that when you become a Christian, your life should change and you should do things differently. Um, It's easier said than done, isn't it? Um, Another reason I love my job, because things are easier said than done. I just have to tell you what to do. Uh, No, I should do it too, shouldn't I? Um, Yeah, it's easier said than done. We need some help, don't we? You know, I can stand up here and I can tell you, you should renounce your old way of life. You should change the way you're acting. You should act better now. I mean, I can just stand up here until I'm blue in the face and tell you, you need to be better, but it's easier said than done. We need some help. We need some training. We need something that will come in and and give us the power and the strength and the wisdom that we need to say no to ungodliness and to say yes to godliness. And the surprising thing is, then when you look at verse 12 and verse 11 together, you see that we do get training. That training comes from grace. Again, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So, we get training. There's, there's a resource there. There's something out there that can help us to say no to ungodliness and to say yes to following God, and that resource is grace. The same grace that saved you as a Christian is the same grace that trains you now to follow Jesus. And this can seem really counterintuitive. Because okay. the, the thing about grace is that it says it doesn't matter what you do. You know, salvation by free grace, point number one here, we're saved by grace. It doesn't matter what you do. Your salvation does not depend upon your actions. You think, wait a minute, that's the message that I need to hear in order to enable me to live a better life? How does that work? I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what you do. You're saved by free grace. You think, well, I'm just going to live like the devil. It doesn't matter what I do. What Paul says here, what the Bible teaches us, though, is that that same grace that saves you, if you understand that salvation by grace, it actually trains you to obey. So what we want to do is we want to say, yeah, I believe in salvation by free grace. I did that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 5 years ago. I, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I got baptized. I believe that salvation. Now, though, I've moved on from that. 
Uh, I've been a Christian for a long time. Pastor, what I want you to tell me is something new. I want you to tell me the list of things I'm supposed to do. T- how much money do I really have to give? You know, uh, tell me, what, what things can I do? What music should I listen to? What, you know, what is it that I actually have to do if I'm going to care for the poor? T- give me some specifics, Pastor. Give me some, some details. I've got that gospel thing down. I did that a long time ago. What I need now is for you to help me to learn how to obey. Well, I think I'm going to disappoint you then. That's what you want. Because the gospel of grace is Christianity 101. And there is no 102. You get the gospel, and, 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 and you never move on from it. You can go deeper in your understanding of it, you can go wider in your application of it, but you never leave it behind. It might not be flashy, but it's where the power is for the Christian life. There's a man named Harry Reeder. He's a pastor. I ran across the story that he told this, year, uh, uh, this week. I ran across the story that he told about the first car that he got. His dad bought him. He says, Dad bought it for him at an auction for $75, so you can tell it was a while ago. Uh, he said it was a pink 57 Ford, which Dad insisted was coral. <laughs> but Harry said, I couldn't drive a pink car to school. I then heard the words that in a not-too-distant future my children would hear, Son, a poor ride is better than a proud walk. It was said so convincingly I knew it was probably in the Bible. So then my dad opened the hood, and to my surprise, underneath was a 390 engine with two four-barreled carburetors, which doesn't mean anything to me, but Joe, is that pretty good? Um, That's good. So the car had been a South Carolina State Interceptor, or a highway patrol car. So nothing had more power under the hood. He continues and says, Space and conviction prevent me from detailing the surprises that Corvettes and Roadsters would get after they looked laughingly at my pink 57 Ford while sitting at stoplights. It didn't look like much, but there was power under the hood. The gospel might not look like much. Um, might not be the flashiest thing. You might feel like you've heard it enough. Uh, maybe when I started the sermon today and, and tried to tell you the greatest news the world has ever heard, you kind of tuned out because you thought, I, I don't need that anymore. Maybe you've noticed that in every sermon I try to share the good news of the gospel and maybe you look around and you think, there's, there's no non-Christians here. Why is he doing this? There's wishful thinking? So hoping there's somebody here who's going to hear the gospel and, and believe this for the first time. We don't need this. Um, maybe you're thinking, oh, it's been nine months. Maybe, maybe soon pastor will get something new to tell us. Um, well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, and not because I'm lazy. I'm out of conviction. See, the gospel might be the newest thing. It might not be the flashiest thing. It might not seem like an incredible method to help you in your Christian life. But I'm telling you, folks, there's power under the hood. The gospel is what we need if we're going to live a Christian life. It's what provides us the training to renounce our ungodliness and to say yes to godliness. It's what teaches us how to obey. If you flip over to the back side of your note-taking outline. Point number three answers the question that maybe you're asking right now. Okay, that sounds nice. The gospel trains us to obey. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. Um, how does that work? How does the gospel really train us to obey? Well, point number three is this. We obey because we love Jesus. See, the heart of Christianity, the heart of what we're doing here today, is all about a person. 
Not me. The person of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do here is about the person, Jesus Christ. See, it's a relationship with a person that's the heart of Christianity. Not about rules, not about performance, but about relationship with a person. And when you get that right, when you get a relationship with a person, with Jesus, when you love him, then you want to obey him. That's how relationships work, right? You know, with, with my wife, I don't, I don't serve her and care for her because I'm afraid of her. I, it's not. No, it's not it. Most of the time. I don't do that because I'm afraid of her. I don't do it because I'm trying to earn her favor to try to make her love me. No, it's because, when our marriage is healthy, it's because I love her and I desire to please her. You know, that's how it works in a relationship. Uh, and that's how it works with Jesus, too, uh, in, because Christianity is about a relationship. In John 14, uh, you can flip there if you want, but in John 14, 23, Jesus explains this to us He's saying to his disciples, John 14, 23, whoever, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the one that me. So verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's the principle. That, that's how it works. If you love Jesus, you will keep his word. It's just obvious if I love my wife, I will serve her and care for her. If we love Jesus, we will obey him and serve him. You can't put the cart before the horse. You love him, and then you obey him. Because Christianity is about this relationship. And if we're back in Titus in verse 13, we see that Paul gives us a great diagnostic tool to figure out if we really do love Jesus. Verse 13, he says, We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the appearing of Jesus. And, and he doesn't just kind of say it in a ho-hum sort of way. He says, no, we're waiting for our blessed hope, this fantastic hope. And, and not just the appearing of Jesus, but the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's really excited about Jesus showing up again. And we should be too. Because if Christianity is really about a relationship with the person of Jesus, if, if it's really all about knowing him, then we should be really excited about the time when he comes back and we get to see him face to face. I got some friends in St. Louis who are in the middle of adopting a child from Rwanda. Uh, they, it's been a long process. It's been like a year and a half. Okay? That they've been doing a lot of paperwork, doing a lot of waiting. Well, we found out this week that they've been approved. So praise God. That's wonderful. Uh, they've been approved. And so that means that now it's only about two months until they finally get to go to Rwanda and meet this little boy that they've been loving from a distance but have never yet seen face to face. Now, can you, can you imagine, a, just a little bit, try to put yourself in their shoes, how do they feel right now? I mean, they're really excited. They're, they're just full of anticipation. They're so eager to get to Rwanda and to finally meet this little boy, to see him. They're just, they're, they can't contain themselves. It's, it's now two months. It's not a very long time. I'm sure it's going to feel like an eternity, probably longer than the year and a half they've waited already, because they know the deadline's there, and they're going to go see this baby boy. Do you, do you feel that, that anticipation, that excitement? Okay, here's a hard question. Do you feel like that about Jesus coming back? Uh, do, you ever, do you ever think about Jesus coming back? Do you feel excitement about finally meeting face-to-face -face the Savior that you've only loved from a distance so far? If you don't, 
You need to examine your heart. Okay? Because Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. It's not just about biding your time, living a good life, being a nice person, in which case you wouldn't care if Jesus showed up or not. I mean, but, but what would we think about my friends in St. Louis if they found out that they're going to, you know, the adoptions come through two months, you get to see your baby, and you're like, well, you know, it'd be nice, I guess, if that works out. Um, you know, we'll, we'll try to find some time to go pick them up, make, make some space. No, we think, you're horrible adoptive parents. You don't actually love this child at all. What do you, no, cancel the adoption. They don't get them. Because it would show that they didn't really love the child. And, and, it, and this is just a good diagnostic for us. If, if we can sit here and think, I don't honestly care whether Jesus comes back or not. I don't have any desire in my heart to see him face to face. Well, then we need to soberly ask ourselves, do I really love Jesus? But don't despair. Because if your love for Jesus is weak, we can get trained by grace. We go right back to the gospel. And point number four on your outline is this. We love Jesus because he first loved us. Verse 14, Paul takes us right back to the gospel and he says, uh, we're waiting for this Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why do we love Jesus? Because he gave himself for us. Verse 14, he gave himself for us. He died for us. Why did he do that? To redeem us from all lawlessness. That is, we had a problem. We were slaves to sin. We're enslaved to the penalty of sin. That you and I deserve to die because of what we had done. But Jesus, in his great love for us, gave himself for us to redeem us from that, to, 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 to pay the penalty for us. Uh, to, to redeem means to buy back or to secure the release of someone from captivity by the payment of a ransom. So when Jesus redeemed us, he bought us back from the captivity we had to sin. We were condemned to die. That's the penalty we were under. And Jesus said, you know what? I got this one. I'm going to pay this penalty. I'm going to redeem them with my own life. And so we love Jesus because he died in our place. He also says uh, he, 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 uh, he gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So Jesus pays the penalty for us so that legally our obligation is fulfilled, but we've also got this moral problem where we're just filthy. You know, like, Jesus paid our penalty, but yeah, I, I'm really not that good of a person. How could God accept me? How could God love me? I've got a mess on my hands with all my sin. But you know what? Jesus paid for that too. He purified us for himself, a people. See, when you put your faith in Jesus... We learned about this in Sunday school today. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. That is, all the benefits that Jesus has become yours. And all the liabilities that you have become Jesus. So that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he redeems us from the penalty of sin because he pays for our sin and sets us free. He also purifies us because his whole life that was lived in perfect obedience to the Father comes credited to our account. Why do we love Jesus? Are you kidding me? Why do we love Jesus? Because he died for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. He purified us with his righteousness. And he did it to redeem for himself a special people, a peculiar people, some translations say, a people for his own possession. This is a word from the Old Testament. 
for the special treasure that a king would have. Like, you know, a king's got a lot of treasure. They got a whole room full of treasure. And they got the special treasure. Like, the, the, you know, not, not your ordinary treasure. Like, when I really want to see the good stuff, I go to my special treasure room. I've got my special treasure. It's the, it's the, it's the most precious treasure. It's the stuff that's most precious to the king. And this is what Jesus has done. He's, he doesn't just kind of like say, yeah, you can come. Just hang out over there in the corner table. You know, I, if I don't have to see you very often, that's all right. No, Jesus says, I'm redeeming you. I'm paying your penalty. I'm purifying you. I'm welcoming you into a relationship with me where I consider you my special treasure, my priceless treasure. I love you that much. Why do we love Jesus? Because he's done this for us by free grace. And as we look at the end of verse 15, that free grace then propels us to, sorry, verse 14, that free grace propels us to good works. It says, we're redeemed, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is how it works, folks. Let's put it together. God died for us. Jesus died for us, saving us by free grace. That grace trains us to obey because it makes us love Christ. As we love Christ, we long to obey him more and more. So the more you understand the gospel, the more you get the fact that it's nothing that you have ever done that earned your salvation, the more you love God and the more that inspires you to obey and to serve him. That's how grace trains us. See, when you recognize how much God loves you, it changes everything. Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher much better than me. He said this. He said, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion... I smote upon my breast that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. So we've got to live under grace. If we live under grace and see how much God loved us, it propels us to obey. If we try to obey first, we lose all the power. We lose all the God-satisfying ability to please him. Get grace right, and it trains us for obedience. Let's pray. Lord, I've been so inadequate in painting a picture of what you've done for us. That's why I'm so thankful for your word in which you have clearly and beautifully instructed us in the gospel of grace. Uh, But I pray, Lord, that the seed that has gone out today would fall in our hearts and germinate and grow, that we would understand how much you love us. Oh, the depth of the riches and the goodness of God. How unsearchable his ways Lord, your your free grace that has been given to us is so good, I can't explain it, but but that we would know it in our hearts and that you would take that grace and that you would inspire us then to love you and to serve you and to change the world, not because we're trying to earn your favor, but because you have loved us. Lord, we thank you for all this. In the name of Jesus, our God and Savior, amen.